"'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house not a creature was stirring, except for this podcaster, who needed frantically to re-record an episode after technology worked against her. This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a PhD candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Hi listeners, welcome to episode 13, The Trollop Who Stole Christmas. This is the last episode for our season 2 series, Fannies and Trollops. As you may have gathered from my intro or the frantic Twitter post I made earlier today, I had a bit of technical difficulty in that the episode that I had recorded and almost completely finished editing disappeared on me. And so here I am, late Christmas Eve, Everyone in my house is in a food coma, and I am re-recording The Trollop Who Stole Christmas. So, deep breath, let's dive in. If you've ever heard of a novelist by the name of Trollop before listening to this season of our podcast, chances are it was Antony. The middle child of Francis Milton and Thomas Antony Trollope, Antony managed to lay claim to the family name and legacy, despite the fact that nearly everyone in his family published fiction or nonfiction during their lifetimes. In part, he pulled this off because he, with the help of his brother, Thomas Adolphus, torpedoed his mother's authorial reputation and legacy in order to make his own work seem more prestigious, as we discussed in the first episodes of this season, Episode 7, Francis Milton Trollope, Parts 1 through 3. Thus the title of this episode. So, this episode continues in the pattern we established with our very first winter holiday episode last year, in that we are presenting you a mini-biography of a fairly well-known Victorian scribbler and sharing some of his holiday-related work. But before we do, I have a few announcements to make. The first one is about this episode in particular. Due to dissertation, job market, and holiday-related chaos, it was especially hard for Eleanor and I to find the time to record together this month. So we decided to split up the episode. I'll be giving you the biography, and Eleanor will read you a selection of Antony's work. Speaking of dissertation chaos, both Eleanor and I are gearing up for our dissertation defenses, or for UK listeners, vivas, sometime in spring term. Uh, that means that most of our brain power right now is dedicated to finishing our work, uh, finishing writing the dissertations, and it's getting, it's been getting progressively trickier and trickier for us to dedicate time to researching and producing quality podcast episodes. 
Now, I should pause and say, don't worry, we aren't quitting the podcast, but we do need some time off. So we'll be going on hiatus from January through June or July. We're hoping to use this time not only to uh, finish our PhDs, but to re-record and remaster some of our older episodes with particularly dicey quality. Um, so the RSS feed won't be completely inactive if you're a subscriber via any apps. You can expect some updates there, and we'll still be around on Twitter and Facebook. But as much as we wish we could keep putting out content throughout the period, it's really for the best if we take a short breather. I think we'll come back refreshed and ready to share more exciting stories with you. We're going to take the summer to assess what's been working, what to change or update, and what cool new features we might want to include in episodes, and we will be back in fall of 2019 with a new season I'm tentatively calling Sci-Fi Scribblers, Scary Scribblers. Okay, that's it for announcements. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. Antony Trollope was born on the 24th of April, 1815, at a house on Russell Square in London. He was one of eight children, seven of whom survived, a fact which made him squarely the middle child. Read into this what you will. Now, if you want to brush up on the context of his childhood, we covered that in some detail in episode 7, parts 1 through 3, so I'd advise going back and listening to those. I'm just going to be skimming past a lot of it today and really just touching on some of the major movements of his life, as it were. So, uh, Antony began attending Harrow School at the age of eight, which was fairly young to start school in the period. I've heard 11 touted, personally, as a more typical age, and I think um, that's the age when um, Wilkie Collins went to school, for example. He wasn't happy there, but when he was sent to a private school in Sunbury two years later, sources describe him as not only unhappy, but, quote, forlorn, end quote. In 1827, he was admitted to Winchester College, which apparently was even worse than the previous two schools. I think we mentioned this in an earlier episode, but this is the school at which he was bullied consistently, habitually, uh, by his older brother, Thomas Adolphus. In his autobiography, Antony writes, I suffered horribly. I could make no stand against it. I was big and awkward and ugly. How well I remember all the agonies of my young heart. How I considered whether I should always be alone. In the summer of 1830, Antony found himself alone with his depressed and angry father while his mother, sisters, and brothers were all in America. His father, who is hiding increasing debts from the rest of the family, if you remember from earlier episodes, withdrew him from Winchester. So Antony suddenly had no escape from a bad home situation. Things remain pretty much the same. Uh, until his parents flee to Bruges when the debt collectors come knocking. Uh, Antony begins working at the post office because his mom has a connection and gets him in there. Apparently, though, he was not a great employee. His heart was never in it, for one thing. But um, N. John Hall notes in his Oxford Dictionary of National uh, Biography entry on Antony Trollope that, quote, he was habitually late and quickly became known for irregularity and unsatisfactory work, end quote. Antony was struggling to live on about 90 pounds a year in London, and apparently around this time borrowed money unwisely. And, like, I just want to interject here to say that 
When you're low income, it's hard not to borrow money unwisely. As I slowly eye my student loans that have been embodied in the ghosts of Christmas past. Um, anyway, aside over. Throughout this unhappy period of his early adult life, writing seems to have been Antony's passion and escape. And I think this is sort of an apprentice period for him, too. Uh, if you've ever heard the saying that you need to do 10,000 hours of something before you get good at it, I think this is what he's doing here. I'm not sure if he's trying to publish in this period at all. Uh, the sources I looked at weren't clear on that, so maybe Eleanor can chime in on Twitter or Facebook um, if she knows. But um, definitely he is writing during the period, and it will have its results later. So in 1841, at the age of 26, Antony put in for and got the post of assistant to a surveyor in Ireland and transferred out of the post office. This seems to have been a turning point in his life. For the first time, he found himself happy, and he had leisure time to enjoy that happiness. Uh, according to Hall, he, quote, took up hunting to hounds, and it became the great passion of his life, end quote. For about 35 years, he hunted regularly um, and really enjoyed it. About a year after moving to Ireland, Trollope met a woman named Rose Hesseltine, whom he married on the 11th of June, 1844. Rose died in 1917, and very little is known about her, except that her father was a banker of Rotherham, Yorkshire, and that she had two sons with Trollope. Henry Merivale in 1846, and Frederick James Antony in 1847. Backtracking a bit, during his engagement to Rose in 1843, Antony started to write his first novel, The McDermott's of Ballycloran, which was published in March of 1847, just before Trollope turned 32. So he's not quite as late of a starter as his mother, whose first novel was published when she was 50, but still later than some. Some of the work Trollope is best known for includes his Barchester novels, The Warden, 1855, Barchester Towers, 1857, Dr. Thorne, 1858, Framley Parsonage, 1861, The Small House at Allington, 1864, and The Last Chronicle of Barset, 1867. He's also well known for his Palliser novels, including Can You Forgive Her? of 1865, Phineas Finn of 1869, and The Eustace Diamonds of 1873. Probably his most quoted and requoted title, at least in academic circles, is The Way We Live Now, which was published in 1875. That's certainly what I knew him for. Thanks to his Barsetshire series, Trollope became friends with famous Victorians, including William Thackeray, uh, George Eliot's partner, G.H. Lewis, and John Everett Millay, who you may remember from our summer miniseries episodes featuring Dr. Anna Wager. Now, as a person, Trollope was contradictory, as we all are. He was described by his friend, W.P. Frith, as, quote, bluff, loud, stormy, and contentious, neither a brilliant talker nor a good speaker, end quote. In comparison with his books, which people considered refined and graceful and calm, uh, he was, uh, it was a night and day, and people really struggled to reconcile him and his mind with the things he created. He remained an enigma until the end. 
On the 3rd of November, 1882, he had a stroke during a laughing fit at a dinner party with his brother-in-law, John Tilly, and his niece, Edith. He died just over a month later, on the 6th of December, 1882, in a nursing home. He was 67 years old. To close out my portion of the episode, I did some digging in the British newspaper archive to see what kinds of reporting happened in the aftermath of Antony Trollope's death. And I stumbled across this very intriguing um, recap of a variety of uh, newspapers' coverage in the Pall Mall Gazette. This isn't an obituary, but it did run on the 7th of December in 1882, so right on the heels of his death. And I thought I'd read some excerpts from this roundup as a way to sort of think about the life of Antony Trollope before turning things over to Eleanor. The Times says, When some novelists die, our regret has an intimate personal note, a touch of gratitude and affection, hardly due from us to any other kind of benefactor, however great. And if ever a novelist had a claim to this kind of widespread affectionate remembrance, it is Mr. Trollope. He will scarcely rank in the future beside the great novelists of the century. Miss Austen and Mr. Trollope, and perhaps Mrs. Gaskell, stand at the head of the second order. The standard says, The death of Mr. Antony Trollope creates a void in English literature, which it will not be very easy to fill up. Mr. Trollope will not rank hereafter with such authors as Fielding, Smollett, Scott, Dickens, Thackeray, Miss Austen, George Eliot, or Charlotte Bronte, but we question whether we have any living novelist who can fairly be called his superior. At the same time, like many other voluminous writers, he in some measure outlived his reputation. Twenty years ago, Mr. Trollope's popularity was enormous but he insensibly contracted a mannerism which gradually became fatiguing. Nor did his invention sustain the calls which his indefatigable industry made upon it. The Daily News says, It would be rash to prophesy that his work will be long read, but it is work of which any man and any man's representatives may be proud, appealing to no unworthy motives, aiming at nothing but honest ends, and of good report. That is almost enough to make me feel guilty about calling him the Trollope who stole Christmas. But when I think about what he tried to do to his mother's literary reputation, and in part succeeded in doing, or would have without the efforts of scholars such as Eleanor, um, well, it just seems kind of like karma. As much as I wish I could end on a poignant, heartwarming note, Antony Trollope's complicated life ended with as much complication as it started. And I think the best way that uh, we can celebrate him, or the condolence to be found in his life, is that he is well-remembered. His works have been made into TV miniseries, and his novels are still read today. So, if you're feeling bad for old Tony, Go and read one of his novels um, and enjoy the short excerpt we have for you today. Anyway, that's all I have for you now. I'll turn things over to Eleanor.
It seems appropriate to wrap up our trollop season with the man who most people associate with the name. And I think it works really nicely for our Christmas episode to read a chapter from his novel Orley Farm. There are a few reasons for this. One thing, this is a chapter that can be read in isolation. You don't need to have the context of the rest of the novel to understand it. Ollie Farm was Anthony Trollope's favourite work of his own, so that's a nice thing. And also, it's widely believed to be quite autobiographical, and based on the farm that we were talking about in the episode about his mother's life, the farm that his father decided to buy, despite having no idea how to run it. It's also a really nice image of a Victorian Christmas. So, without further ado, I am going to read chapter 22 of Orley Farm, Christmas at Noningsby. The house at Noningsby on Christmas Day was quite full, and yet it was by no means a small house. Mrs Arbuthnot, the judge's married daughter, was there with her three children, and Mr Furnival was there, having got over those domestic difficulties in which we lately saw him as best he might. And Lucius Mason was there, having been especially asked by Lady Stavely when she heard that his mother was to be at the Cleeve. There could be no more comfortable country house than Noningsby, and it was, in its own way, pretty though essentially different in all respects from the cleave. It was a new house from the cellar to the ceiling, and as a house was no doubt the better for being so. All the rooms were of the proper proportion, and all the newest appliances for comfort had been attached to it. But nevertheless, it lacked that something in appearance rather than in fact, which age alone can give to the residence of a gentleman in the country. The gardens also were new, and the grounds around them trim and square and orderly. Noningsby was a delightful house. No one with money and taste at command could have created for himself one more delightful. But then, there are delights which cannot be created, even by money and taste. It was a pleasant sight to see the long, broad, well-filled breakfast table, with all that company round it. There were some eighteen or twenty gathered now at the table, among whom the judge sat preeminent, looming large in an armchair, and having a double space allotted to him. Some eighteen or twenty, children included. At the bottom of the table sat Lady Staveley who still chose to preside among her own teacups as a lady should do, and close to her, assisting in the toils of that presidency, sat her daughter Madeline. Nearest to them were gathered the children, and the rest had formed themselves into little parties, each of which already well knew its own place at the board. And how very short a time will come upon one the pleasant custom of sitting in an accustomed place. But here, at these Noningsby breakfasts, among other customs already established, there was one by which Augustus Staveley was always privileged to sit by the side of Sophia Furnival. No doubt his original object was still unchanged. A match between that lady and his friend Graham was still desirable, and by perseverance he might pique Felix Graham to arouse himself. But hitherto, Felix Graham had not aroused himself in that direction, and one or two people among the party were inclined to mistake young Staveley's intentions. Gus, his sister had said to him the night before, I declare I think you are going to make love to Sophia Furnival. Do you? He had replied. As a rule, I do not think there is anyone in the world for whose discernment I have so much respect as I have for yours. But in this respect, even you are wrong. Ah, uh, of course you say so. If you won't believe me, ask her. What more can I say? I certainly shan't ask her, for I don't know her well enough. She's a very clever girl, let me tell you that, whoever falls in love with her. I'm sure she is, and she is handsome too, very. But for all that, she is not good enough for Agus. Of course she is not, and therefore I am not thinking of her. And now I'll go to bed and dream that you have got the Queen of the Fortunate Islands for your sister-in-law. 
But although Staveley was himself perfectly indifferent to all the charms of Miss Furnival, nevertheless he could hardly restrain his dislike to Lucius Mason, who, as he thought, was disposed to admire the lady in question. In talking of Lucius to his own family, and his special friend Graham, he had called him conceited, pedantic, uncouth, un-English, and detestable. His own family, that is, his mother and sister, rarely contradicted him in anything, but Graham was by no means so cautious, and usually contradicted him in everything. Indeed, there was no sign of sterling worth so plainly marked in Staveley's character as the full conviction which he entertained of the superiority of his friend Felix. "'You are quite wrong about him,' Felix had said. "'He has not been at an English school or English university, and therefore is not like the other young men that you know, but he is, I think, well-educated and clever. As for conceit, what man will do any good who is not conceited?' Nobody holds a good opinion of a man who has a low opinion of himself. All the same, my dear fellow, I do not like Lucius Mason. And someone else, if you remember, did not like Dr. Fell. And now, good people, what are you all going to do about church? said Staveley, while they were still engaged with their rolls and eggs. I shall walk, said the judge. And I shall go in the carriage, said the judge's wife. That disposes of two, and now it will take half an hour to settle for the rest. Miss Furnival, you, no doubt, will accompany my mother. As I shall be among the walkers, you will see how much I sacrificed by the suggestion. It was a mile to the church, and Miss Furnival knew the advantage of appearing in her seat unfatigued and without subjection to wind, mud, or rain. I must confess, she said, that under all the circumstances I should prefer your mother's company to yours. Whereupon Staveley, in the completion of his arrangements, assigned the other places in the carriage to the married ladies of the company. But I have taken your sister Madeline's seat in the carriage, protested Sophia with great dismay. My sister Madeline generally walks. Then, of course, I shall walk with her. When the time came, Miss Furnival did go in the carriage, whereas Miss Stavely went on foot. It so fell out, as they started, that Graham found himself walking at Miss Stavely's side, to the great disgust, no doubt, of half a dozen other aspirants for that honour. I cannot help thinking, he said, as they stepped briskly over the crisp white frost, that this Christmas day of ours is a great mistake. Oh, Mr. Graham, she exclaimed. You need not regard me with horror, at least not with any special horror on this occasion. But what you said is very horrid. That, I flatter myself, seems so only because I have not yet said it. That part of our Christmas Day which is made to be in any degree sacred is by no means a mistake. I am glad you think that. Or rather, it is not a mistake in as far as it is in any degree made sacred. But the peculiar conviviality of the day is so ponderous. Its worst beefiness oppresses one so thoroughly from the first moment of one's waking to the last ineffectual effort at a bit of fried pudding for supper. But you need not eat fried pudding for supper. Indeed, here, I am afraid you will not have any supper offered to you at all. No, not to me individually under that name. I might also manage to guard my own self under any such offers. But there is always the flavour of the sweetmeat in the air, of all the sweetmeats, edible and non-edible. You begrudge the children their snap dragon. That's what it all means, Mr. Graham. No, I deny it. Unpremeditated snapdragon is dear to my soul, and I could expend myself in blind man's buff. You shall then, after dinner, for of course you know that we all dine early. But blind man's buff at three, with snapdragon at a quarter to four, charades at five, with wine and sweet cake at half past six, is ponderous. And that's our big mistake. The big turkey would be very good. Capital fun to see a turkey twice as big as it ought to be. But the big turkey and the mountain of beef and the pudding weighing a hundred weight oppress one's spirit by their combined gravity, and then they impart a memory of indigestion, a halo, as it were, of apoplexy, even to the church services. I do not agree with you the least in the world. I ask you to answer me fairly. 
is not additionally eating an ordinary Englishman's ordinary idea of Christmas Day. I am only an ordinary Englishwoman, and therefore can't say it is not my idea. I believe that the ceremony, as kept by us, is perpetuated by the butchers and beer sellers, with a helping hand from the grocers. It is essentially a material festival, and I would not object to it even on that account, if it were not so grievously overdone. How the sun is moistening the frost on the ground, as we come back the road will be quite wet. We shall be going home then, and it will not signify. Remember, Mr. Graham, I shall expect you to come forward in great strength for blind man's buff. As he gave her the required promise, he thought that even the sports of Christmas Day would be bearable, if she also were to make one of the sportsmen, and then they entered the church. I do not know of anything more pleasant to the eye than a pretty country church decorated for Christmas Day. The effects in a city is altogether different. I will not say that the churches there should not be decorated, but comparatively it is a matter of indifference. No one knows who does it. The peculiar munificence of the squire who has sacrificed his holly bushes is not appreciated. The work of the fingers that have been employed is not recognised. The efforts made for hanging the pendant reefs to each capital have been of no special interest to any large number of the worshippers. It has been done by contract, probably, and even if well done, has none of the grace of association. But here at Noningsby Church, the winter flowers had been cut by Madeline and the gardeners, and the red berries had been grouped by her own hands. She and the vicar's wife had stood together with perilous audacity on the top of the clerk's desk while they fixed the branches beneath the cushion of the old-fashioned turret, from which the sermons were preached. All this had, of course, been talked about at the house, and some of the party had gone over to see, including Sophia Furnival, who had declared that nothing could be so delightful, though she had omitted to endanger her fingers by any participation in the work, and the children had regarded the operation as a triumph of all that was wonderful in decoration, and thus many of them had been made happy. On their return from church, Miss Furnival insisted on walking, in order, as she said, that Miss Staveley might have all the fatigue. But Miss Staveley would walk also, and the carriage, after a certain amount of expostulation and delay, went off with its load incomplete. And now for the plum pudding part of the arrangement, said Felix Graham. Yes, Mr Graham, said Madeline, now for the plum pudding, and the blind man's buff. Did you ever see anything more perfect than the church, Mr Mason, said Sophia. Anything more perfect? No, in that sort of way, perhaps never. I have seen the choir of Cologne. Come, come, that's not fair, said Graham. Don't import Cologne in order to crush us here down in our little English villages. You never saw the choir of Cologne bright with holly berries? No, but I have with cardinal stockings and bishop's robes. I think I should prefer the holly, said Miss Furnival. And why should not our churches always look like that, only changing the flowers and the foliage with the season? It would make the service so attractive. It would hardly do at Lent, said Madeleine in a serious tone. No, perhaps not at Lent, exactly. Peregrine and Augustus Stavely were walking on in front, not, perhaps, as well satisfied with the day as the rest of the party. Augustus, on leaving the church, had made a little effort to assume his place as usual by Miss Furnival's side, for by some accident of war, Mason was there before him. He had not cared to make one of a party of three, and therefore had gone on in advance with young Orme, nor was Peregrine himself much more happy. He did not know why, but he felt within his breast a growing aversion to Felix Graham. Graham was a puppy, he thought, and a fellow that talked too much. And then he was such a confoundedly ugly dog, and, and, and Peregrine Orme did not like him. He was not a man to analyse his own feelings in such matters. He did not ask himself why he should have been rejoiced to hear that instant business had taken Felix Graham off to Hong Kong, but he knew that he would have rejoiced. 
He knew also that Madeline Stapley was... No, he did not know what she was. But when he was alone, he carried on with her all manner of imaginary conversations, though when he was in her company, he had hardly a word to say to her. Under these circumstances, he fraternised with her brother. But even in that, he could not receive much satisfaction, seeing that he could not abuse Graham to Graham's special friend, nor could he breathe a sigh as to Madeline's perfections into the ear of Madeline's brother. The children, and there were three or four assembled there besides those belonging to Mrs Arbuthnot, were by no means inclined to agree with Mr Graham's strictures as to the amusements of Christmas Day. To them, it appeared that they could not hurry fast enough into the vortex of its dissipations. The dinner was a serious consideration, especially with reference to certain illuminated mince pies, which were the crowning glory of that banquet. But time for these was almost begrudged, in order that the fast handkerchief might be tied over the eyes of the first blind man. And now we'll go into the schoolroom, said Marion Arbuthnot, jumping up and leading the way. Come along, Mr Felix, and Felix Graham followed her. Madeline had declared that Felix Graham should be blinded first, and such was his doom. Now, mind you, catch me, Mr Felix, pray do, said Marion, when she had got him seated in a corner of the room. She was a beautiful, fair little thing, with long, soft curls and lips red as a rose, and large, bright blue eyes, all soft and happy and laughing, loving the friends of her childhood with passionate love, and fully expecting an equal devotion from them. It is of such children that our wives and sweethearts should be made. But how am I to find you when my eyes are blinded? Oh, you can feel, you know. You can put your hand on the top of my head. I mustn't speak, you know, but I'm sure I shall laugh. And then you must guess that it's Marion. That was her idea of playing Blyman's buff, according to the strict rigour of the game. And you'll give me a big kiss, said Felix. Yes, when we've done playing, she promised with great seriousness. and then a huge white silk handkerchief as big as a small sail was brought down from Grandpapa's dressing room, so that nobody should see the least bit in the world, as Marion had observed with great energy, and the work of blinding was commenced. I ain't big enough to reach round, said Marion, who had made an effort, but in vain. You do it, Aunt Mad. And she tendered the handkerchief to Miss Stavely, who, however, did not appear very eager to undertake the task. I'll be the executioner, said Grandmamma. The more especially, as I shall not take any other share in the ceremony. This shall be the chair of doom. Come here, Mr. Graham, and submit yourself to me. And so the first victim was blinded. Mind you, said Marion, whispering into his ear as he was led away. Green spirits and white, blue spirits and grey. And then he was twirled round in the room and left to commence his search as best he might. Marion Arbuthnot was not the only soft little laughing darling that wished to be caught and blinded so that there was great pulling at the blind man's tails, and much grasping at his outstretched arms before the desired object was attained, and he wandered round the room skilfully, as though a thought were in his mind false to his treaty with Marion, and so he imagined for a moment that some other prize might be caught. But if so, the other prize evaded him carefully, and in due progress of play, Marion's soft curls were within his grasp. "'I'm sure I didn't speak or say a word,' said she, as she ran up to her grandmother, to have the handkerchief put over her eyes. "'Did I, Grandmamma?' There are more ways of speaking than one, said Lady Stavely. You and Mr. Graham understand each other, I think. Oh, I was caught quite fairly, said Marion, and now lead me round and round. To her, at any rate, the festivities of Christmas Day were not too ponderous for real enjoyment. And then, at last, somebody caught the judge. I rather think it was Madeline, but his time in truth was come, and he had no chance of escape. The whole room was set upon his capture, 
and that he parricaded himself with chairs and children, who was duly apprehended and named. That's Papa. I know by his watch chain, for I made it. Nonsense, my dear, said the judge. I will do no such thing. I should never catch anybody, and should remain blind forever. But Grandpapa must, said Marion. It's the game that he should be blinded when he's caught. Suppose the game was that we should be whipped when we are caught, and I was to catch you, said Augustus. But I would not play that game, said Marion. Oh, Papa, you must, said Madeline. Do, and you shall catch Mr. Furnival. That would be a temptation, said the judge. I've never been able to do that yet, though I've been trying it for some years. Justice is blind, said Graham. Why should a judge be ashamed to follow the example of his own goddess? And so, at last, the owner of the ermine submitted, and the stern magistrate of the bench was led round with the due incantation of the spirits, and dismissed into chaos to seek for a new victim. One of the rules of Blyman's Buff at Noingsby was this, that it should not be played by candlelight, a rule that is in every way judicious, as thereby an end is secured for that which might otherwise be an ended. And therefore, when it became so dark in the schoolroom that there was not much difference between the blind man and the others, the handkerchief was smuggled away, and the game was at an end. And now for Snapdragon, said Marion. Exactly as you predicted, Mr. Graham, said Madeline. Blyman's Buff at quarter past three, and Snapdragon at five. I revoke every word that I uttered, for I was never more amused in my life. And you'll be prepared to endure the wine and the sweet cake when they come. Prepared to endure everything, and go through everything. We should be allowed candles now, I suppose. Oh no, by no means. Snapdragon by candlelight, whoever heard of such a thing, would wash all the dragon out of it, and leave nothing but the snap. It is a necessity of the game that it should be played in the dark, or rather, by its own lurid light. Oh, there is lurid light, is there? You shall see. And then she turned away to make her preparations. To the game of Snapdragon, as played at Noningsby, a ghost was always necessary, and Aunt Madeline had played the ghost ever since she had been an aunt, and there had been any necessity for such a part. But in previous years, the spectators had been fewer in number, and more closely connected to the family. I think we must drop the ghost on this occasion, she said, coming up to her brother. You'll disgust them all dreadfully if you do, said he. The young Seabrights have come specially to see the ghost. Well, you can do ghost for them. I? No. I can't act a ghost. Miss Furnival, you'd make a lovely ghost. I shall be most happy to be useful, said Sophia. Oh, Aunt Mad, you must be ghost, said Marion, following her. You foolish little thing, you. We are going to have a beautiful ghost. A divine ghost, said Uncle Gus. But we want Madeline to be the ghost, said a big Miss Seabright, ten or eleven years old. She's always ghost, said Marion. To be sure, it will be much better, said Miss Furnival. I only offered my poor services, hoping to be useful. No Banquo that ever lived could leave a worse ghost behind him than I should prove. It ended in there being two ghosts. It had become quite impossible to rob Miss Furnival of her promised part, and Madeline could not refuse to solve the difficulty in this way, without making more of the matter than it deserved. The idea of two ghosts was delightful to the children, more especially as it entailed two large dishes full of raisins, and two blue fires blazing up from burnt brandy. So the girls went out, not without proffered assistance from the gentlemen, and after a painfully long interval of some fifteen or twenty minutes, for Miss Furnival's back hair would not come down and adjust itself into ghost-like lengths with as much readiness as that of her friend, they returned bearing the dishes before them, on large trays. In each of them the spirit was lighted, as they entered the schoolroom door, and thus, as they walked in, they were illuminated by the dark blue flames which they carried. Oh, is it not grand, said Marion, appealing to Felix Graham. Uncommonly grand, he replied. 
And which ghost do you think is the grandest? I'll tell you which ghost I like the best. In a secret, you know. I like Aunt Mad the best, and I think she's the grandest too. And I'll tell you in a secret that I think the same. To my mind, she's the grandest ghost I ever saw in my life. Is she indeed? said Marion, solemnly, thinking probably that her new friend's experience in ghosts must be extensive. However that might be, he thought that as far as his experiences in women went, he had never seen anything more lovely than Madeline Staveley, dressed in a long white sheet, with a long bit of white cambric pinned around her face. And it may be presumed that the dress altogether is not unbecoming when accompanied by blue flames, for Augustus Staveley and Lucius Mason thought the same thing of Miss Furnival, whereas Peregrine Orme did not know whether he was standing on his head or his feet as he looked at Miss Staveley. Miss Furnival may possibly have had some inkling of this when she offered to undertake the task, but I protest that such was not the case with Madeline. There was no second thought in her mind when she first declined the ghosting, and afterwards undertook the part. No wish to look beautiful in the eyes of Felix Graham had come to her at any rate as yet, and as to Peregrine Orme, she had hardly thought of his existence. By heavens, said Peregrine to himself, she is the most beautiful creature that I ever saw. And then he began to speculate within his own mind how the idea might be received at the Cleeve, but there was no such realised idea with Felix Graham. He saw that Madeline Staveley was very beautiful, and he felt in an unconscious manner that her character was very sweet. He may have thought that he might have loved such a girl, had such love been a thing permitted to him. But this was far from being the case. Felix Graham's lot in this life, as regarded that share which his heart might have in it, was already marked up for himself and by himself. The future wife of his bosom had already been selected. It was now in course of preparation for the duties of her future life. He was one of those few wise men who have determined not to take a partner in life at hazard, but to mould a young mind and character to those pursuits and modes of thoughts which may best fit a woman for the duties that she will have to perform. What little it may be necessary to know of the early years of Mary Snow shall be told hereafter. Here, it will be only necessary to say that she was an orphan, and that as yet she was little more than a child, and that she owed her maintenance and the advantage of her education to the charity and love of her destined husband. Therefore, as I have said, it was manifest that Felix Graham could not think of falling in love with Miss Staveley, even had not his very low position in reference to worldly affairs made any such passion on his part quite hopeless. But with Peregrine Orme the matter was different. There could be no possible reason why Peregrine Orme should not win and wear the beautiful girl whom he so much admired. But the ghosts are kept standing over their flames, the spirit is becoming exhausted, and the ravens will be burnt. At Snapdragon 2, the ghosts here had something to do. The law of the game is this, a law on which Marion would have insisted had not the flames been so very hot. That the raisins shall become the prey of those audacious marauders only who dare to face the presence of the ghost, and to plunge their hands into the burning dish. As a rule, the boys do this, clawing out the raisins, while the girls pick them up and eat them. But here at Noningsby, the boys were too little to act thus as pioneers in the face of the enemy, and the raisins might have remained till the flames were burnt out, had not the beneficent ghost scattered abroad the richness of her own treasures. Now, Marion, said Felix Graham, bringing her up in his arms. But it will burn, Mr. Felix. Look there. See, there are a great many at that end. You do it. I must have another kiss, then. Very well, yes, if you get five. And then Felix dashed his hand in among the flames and brought forth a fistful of fruit, which imparted to his fingers and wristband a smell of brandy for the rest of the evening. If you take so many at a time, I shall wrap your knuckles with the spoon, said the ghost as she stirred up the flames to keep them alive. But the ghost shouldn't speak, said Marion, who was evidently unacquainted with the best ghosts of tragedy. But the ghost must speak when such large hands invade the cauldron, 
and then another raid was effected, and the threatened blow was given. Had anyone told her in the morning that she would that day have wrapped Mr. Graham's knuckles with a kitchen spoon, she would not have believed that person. But it is thus that hearts are lost and won. And Peregrine Orme looked on from a distance, thinking of it all. That he should have been stricken dumb by the beauty of any girl was surprising even to himself. Though young and almost boyish in his manners, he had never yet feared to speak out in any presence. The tutor at his college had thought him insolent beyond parallel, and his grandfather, though he loved him for his open face and plain outspoken words, found them sometimes almost too much for him. But now he stood there, looking and logging, and could not summon the courage to go up and address a few words to this young girl, even in the midst of their sports. Twice or thrice during the last few days he had essayed to speak to her, but his words had been dull and vapid, and to himself they had appeared childish. He was quite conscious of his own weakness. More than once, during that period of the snapdragon, did he say to himself that he would descend into the lists and break a lance in that tawny, but still he did not descend, and his lance remained inglorious in its wreck. At the other end of the long table, the ghost also had two attendant knights, and neither of them refrained from the battle. Augustus Savely, if he thought it worth his while to keep the lists at all, would not be allowed to ride through them unopposed from any backwardness on the part of his rival. Lucius Mason was not likely to become a timid, silent, longing lover. To him, it was not possible that he should fear the girl whom he loved. He could not worship that which he wished to obtain for himself. It may be doubted whether he had much faculty of worshipping anything in the truest meaning of that word. One worships that which one feels, through the inner and unexpressed conviction of the mind, to be greater, better, higher than oneself. But it was not probable that Lucius Mason should so think of any woman that he might meet. Nor, to give him his due, was it probable that he should be in any way afraid of any man that he might encounter. He would fear neither the talent, nor the rank, nor the money influence, nor the dexterity of any such rival. In any attempt that he might make on a woman's heart, he would regard his own chance as good against that of any possible he. Augustus Stavely was master here at Nunningsby, and was a clever, dashing, handsome, fashionable young fellow. But Lucius Mason never dreamed of retreating before such forces as those. He had words with which to speak as fair as those of any man, and flattered himself that he as well knew how to use them. It was pretty to see with what admirable tact and judicious management of her smiles Sophia received the homage of the two young men, answering the compliments of both with ease, and so conducting herself that neither could fairly accuse her of undue favour to the other. But unfairly, in his own mind, Augustus did so accuse her. And why should he have been so venomous, seeing that he entertained no regard for the lady himself? His object was still plain enough, that, namely, of making a match between his needy friend and the heiress. His needy friend, in the meantime, played on through the long evening in thoughtless happiness, and Peregrine Orme, looking at the game from a distance, saw that rap given to the favoured knuckles with a bitterness of heart and an inner groaning of the spirit that would not be incomprehensible to many. I do so love that Mr. Felix, said Marian, as her aunt Madeline kissed her in her little bed and wishing her good night. Don't you, Aunt Mad? And so it was that Christmas Day was passed at Noningsby.
This is the second of four Christmas chapters in Orley Farm. So it's preceded by Christmas in Harley Street, and then succeeded by Christmas at Groby Park and Christmas in Great St Helens. But I have chosen to read this particular chapter both because of Felix's points about Christmas that I think might resonate with a lot of our listeners, and for the games of Blind Man's Buff and Snapdragon that I think may possibly not be familiar to a lot of people. Blind Man's Buff is still played quite a lot in the UK. Um, I certainly grew up playing it. Possibly problematic name, but it is just this idea that you are blindfolded and then spun around and you have to run around the room (laughs) trying to catch other people who then become the blind man. And Snapdragon is a bit more unusual. You might have got the idea from Charlotte's version, which is a bit different. It's a very classic Victorian game that would not pass any health and safety tests now. You fill a bowl with raisins and then pour brandy over the top, set it on fire, and then the aim is to get as many raisins out of that fire as possible. It's a bizarre and very idiosyncratically Victorian game. And I thought that was a nice chapter to read you for our Christmas episode and for the conclusion of the Trollope season. Happy holidays, and thank you, as always, for listening. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbill. All episodes are produced by me, with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. All of the music for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Today's intro and outro were Tchaikovsky's Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from The Nutcracker, made available by the European Archive. And our transition music was Claude Dubasset's Arabesque No. 1, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band.